please turn to Mark 13, verses 24 and 25. We'll be going through two verses today. Mark 13, 24, 25. We're so ever close to approaching what I believe to be one of the most significant, glorious events in all of human history. Not just myself, I believe every soul that has been regenerated, everyone that loves the Lord Jesus and cries, Oh, come quickly, oh Lord Jesus, is eagerly waiting for this event with much anticipation. No matter the eschatological view that you would hold. In other words, no matter anyone's view of the end times or how the end of the world will unfold, every blood-bought child of God is meant to be standing on his tippy toes, looking over the fence of this world, always watching, never doubting, constantly looking for the final coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great Savior, Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.7 Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.4 When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. How comforting is this to his beloved? How cheering to the broken heart? How soothing to the hurting among those who are precious in his sight is the final rescue mission of Christ when he comes again, utterly destroying the Christ-rejecting world, establishing his millennial kingdom when we will triumphantly reign with him without sin and without suffering. Is there any better day than this day? Do you know of a more majestic event than this event? Yet, multitudes of Christians. I'm talking about pastors all the way to just lay Christians hardly give five minutes of their time studying this glorious event. How much of teaching has been given to study the first coming of Christ, Christ in his humiliation, but yet little is given to the second coming of Christ when he comes in his exaltation. Many give attention to the virgin birth, the manger, the suffering, the rejection, the crucifixion. But how familiar are we with the glorious return of Christ, his rule, his wrath, his reign? Now, just as the Old Testament prophesied the coming of the Messiah, and though from far, from their perspective, long ago, it seemed to the Jews at that time, to the Old Testament saints, as though it was a, a one singular event, yet we know that there were actually two comings of Christ, right? The first led to his physical death, and the second will lead to his physical reign. 
Now, just as the coming of Christ is actually two comings, not one, so also the second coming of Christ will be of two phases, not one. Let me give you the contrast between the two phases of the second coming of Christ. First phase is the coming of Christ to the cloud. The second phase is his coming of Christ to the ground. The first phase is of the rapture of the church where we will go up to heaven and stay up. The second phase is the coming down of Christ with the church and the angels while staying down, gathering of the tribulation believers to rule and to reign on earth. These are two completely distinct phases. Now, some attempt to merge these two phases together into one, and then they assume that Christ will gather us and then rapture us up to the cloud. And as soon as we go up to the cloud, immediately he brings us down again. Now, besides the absurdity in, in this order, because it adds no value, no purpose, um, it renders the rapture, which happens to be a mystery, it renders this rapture meaningless. Besides this, this is not what the scripture teaches. Why? Because the first phase is the fulfillment of John 14, verses 2 and 3. Let me read it to you. Jesus says, In my Father's house, Where is the Father's house? In heaven, right? Are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to do what? To prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, where in heaven, of course, I will come again. That's the second coming of Christ, right? I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Why would Christ go and prepare a place for us if the moment we go up, immediately we come down? No, Christ will snatch us up and we will stay up with him. Now, while the Phase one is the fulfillment of John 14. Phase two of the second coming of Christ is the fulfillment of today's passage. So let's read it together. Verses 24. We're reading from verse 24 to verse 27 for today. Jesus says, But in those days, after that tribulation, The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the furthest end of the earth, to the furthest end of heaven. Now the time between the first phase and the second phase of the second coming of Christ, as we have been studying thus far, is seven-year period, which is the last week of years in Daniel's book, in the book of Daniel chapter 9. 
Now, up until last message, we've gone through the last seven years. Today and next week, Lord willing, we'll be covering the last days, not the last years, the last days before the coming of Christ. I trust that by the end of this message, if you're a Christian this morning, you will be glad that the rapture is going to happen in the first phase before all these things are going to happen. Today's message, the outline will be simple once more time. It'll be this, the time, the tearing down and the terror. Time, tearing down, terror. We'll start with the time. What is the time? Of the final coming of Christ. And we read in verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation. But. We'll stop right there. This is such a significant word. Because it sets a, a dramatic contrast between the, the false Christs that, that we looked at in verse 22 and the counterfeit Christ that you're not meant to, the counterfeit, sorry, the counterfeit Christ that you're not meant to believe in. And it'll be the setting up for the final return of the true Christ that you're waiting for. That Jesus Christ, the true Christ, is coming, and his coming is with a style. He's going to come with a dramatic entrance. And when is he coming? He says, in those days after that tribulation. In which days? Now, some argue and they say, well, Jesus spoke thus far from verse 5 to all the way to verse 23, they were already uh, covered. And they say, oh, well, all of that from 5 to 23 have already been fulfilled at 70 AD. Now, we've seen that this is not the case, but they continue on saying that when Jesus says in those days, he's now changing the topic. And now he's referring to the end times. So before he's referring to the destruction of the temple, now he's referring to the end times. And I submit to you that this is false to think this way for many reasons. Let me give you three reasons why. There are more, but we'll give you three why this is not the case. Number one, where do you get this from? You're just making it up. Jesus never stated that he's changing the topic. Jesus would have been the most unclear and the most confusing teacher if he changed the topic without making it clear to his disciples at that time. Right? Second reason. Why would he change the topic when from the very beginning the question that he was answering had to do with the end of the age and his coming? But the third and the most compelling reason of them all is because of what this text is saying. So what you need to do is read the text. Just read the text. And it says, in those days. When those days? After that tribulation. And so Jesus here connects the final coming with that tribulation. 
Now, some, some might say, well, after that tribulation, well, it could be after by 10 months or 10 years or 20 or 2,000 years after. Well, just to be absolutely clear, you can check that for yourself. Matthew, in his gospel account, he adds the word immediately. And so in Matthew 24, verse 29, it says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, as soon as the time of this tribulation is up, no gap period, no delay, but at once, at the end of the tribulation of those days, then the stage will be set for the coming of Christ. Right? Clear? Now, what tribulation is Jesus referring to? Obviously, it is the tribulation that he already mentioned in verse 29 to verse 19. And he says this, for those days will be a time of what? Tribulation, such as, as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Matthew calls it the great tribulation. It will be a time of distress. A time of extreme anguish. And as God will bring judgment upon the sinful world, it will be, it will begin halfway through the last seven year period and it will start with the abomination of desolation when God will remove his restraining hand and let Satan loose with almost unrestricted freedom to roam around the earth and to cause havoc. The Antichrist will upgrade his status from being the most influential leader um, in all of the world to setting himself as God in a restored temple of God. And he will desecrate the temple. And he will deceive the world by performing acrobatic, powerful miracles. And, they, and he will trick the world to worship him. And then he will unleash the fury of Satan upon Christians and Jews in those days. Every Jew will have a target on his back and is sentenced to death. And it will be a great massacre like we saw in Zechariah 13.8 that tells us that two-thirds of the Jews that live in Israel at that time will be slaughtered. And as the Antichrist launches his attack, and as the ground begins to be filled with the blood, and everyone will be thrown into confusion, and the whole world will be thrown into disarray, and those who are in Judea will flee up to hide in the caves of the mountains, and as God would temporarily hand over the world to the clench of Satan in such an unprecedented way, and as sin run rampant, and as sinners will not relent in their violence, drug abuse, immorality, and theft, you can read that for yourself in Revelation 9, 21, in all their wicked works. After all that is happening in those days, then God will say, enough is enough. My patience with man has run out. The world is ripe for judgment. Satan, you're playing in overtime. The ref has already put the whistle in his mouth and he's about to blow. Wicked men, time is ticking. 
And the bomb of Christ's rejection is about to explode. That's the time. When is the time? Immediately at the end of the three and a half years of the tribulation period. Then we come to the tearing down. There is a particular kind of wrath that God has preserved for the duration of this entire seven-year period. Eschatological wrath is called. But as the seven years will be coming to an end, God will turn the knob of his furnace to maximum. And the curse of God upon the earth will reach its apex. And there will be literal, physical, cosmic disturbance. Heavens will open up and it will pour down the judgment of God upon this wicked world. The time just before the coming of Christ will be a time of judgment because of sin. Time of wreckage. And we read that in verse 24. We'll continue reading. It says, but in those days after that tribulation, what will happen? The sun will be darkened. Now, what does it mean that the sun will be darkened? It means what it says. And some undermine the devastation in those days. And, and they say that uh, this is just a, a figure of speech. And therefore, dilute that kind of wrath that God would have upon people at that time. And they continue and they say, well, surely nothing will happen to the sun. Surely it means that something great is about to happen. That's all it means. Well, do you know if Jesus was meant to say that something is great is about to happen, do you know what he would have said? He would have said this. He would have said something is great is about to happen. And if Jesus wanted to say that the sun will be darkened, do you know what he would have said? Exactly. The sun will be darkened. That's right. Even little kids can understand. Just be simple. Read the text. The brother. This is similar to the ninth plague that hit Egypt at the time of Pharaoh. Do you remember when, when God brought darkness over all of Egypt? You read that in Exodus 10 where it says that darkness that can be felt such that no one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. This is a preview of what will happen in the end times. And when we look back in time, do we take that ninth plague that came upon Egypt literally or not? And if we do take it literally as we should, then why should we not take literally this prophecy that Jesus said when he said the sun will be darkened before the return of Christ? Do we think that the Antichrist and the world in those days will be less wicked than Pharaoh and so they won't deserve this severe judgment? Or, or do we think perhaps that God is becoming weaker over time and so he won't be able to do these mighty deeds as he did in the past? Even the Son is God's Son. 
And God says that he will darken this sun and it'll be so dark and we continue reading to the point that the moon will not give its light. Of course, because the moon reflects a lot of the sun. So in the last days of the last days, it will be pitch black. Think about it. No light. What does it mean, no light? It means there's no heat. No light and no heat means no electricity. All creatures will be as blind as bats. Everyone will be walking around groping for walls to touch. The streets will be empty. It'll be just a, a dangerous journey just to go from your bedroom to your bathroom. People will fall over everywhere. And as people are trembling and tumbling and crawling over each other, there will be no electricity, meaning there will be no phones to use, no one to call for help, no ambulance to be there when you need it the most. Hospitals will be out of order. Food stores will be closed down indefinitely. Chemists will be shut down. And because there will be no heat, the whole globe will become a very large freezer. People will try to reach for blankets and jackets so they don't freeze to death. And it won't be just the sun and the moon that will malfunction. We'll continue reading in verse 25. It says, and the stars will be falling from heaven. Please note, it doesn't say that the stars will fall, but will be falling, meaning a star will fall and then there is another star and then there is another star and they're going to keep him falling one after the other. They will keep on falling out of the sky in rapid succession. And by the way, I just want to say something. What Jesus said here, this prophecy, it, it's not something new. The Old Testament repeatedly mentioned the same thing over and over again. You can read Haggai, you can read Zechariah, or you can read Isaiah. So Isaiah, let's turn to Isaiah, please. Um, he wrote this 700 years earlier before Jesus in Isaiah chapter 13. And we read verses 10 and 11. Now, there is a, a near and far fulfillment of what Isaiah mentioned, but certainly verses 10 and 11 is definitely a far fulfillment. Isaiah 13 verses 10 and 11. It says this, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Exactly like what Jesus said. Now, why? Why would God do that? Isaiah continues in verse 11 and he says, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. There will be a universal, catastrophic devastation that will come upon the earth because of God's holy anger against the sinfulness of man. Now, 
Go to verse 13. Isaiah continues and he says, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of Yahweh of host in the day of his burning anger. Make no mistake. God in those days is not going to be passively watching the wickedness of man unfolding with his arms crossed. God will not be apathetically observing the wickedness on earth. No. Read it one more time. Here in verse 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of Yahweh of hosts in the day of his burning anger. God's anger against sin will be passionately burning hot. His righteousness has been assaulted. His moral law has been trampled upon by man's rebellion. And so the fury of God's holy wrath will be felt in all of the earth. And it's not just all of the earth. Let's go back to Mark. In the last sentence of verse 25, we read the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. The powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. This speaks of all the cosmic forces, this power here, all the energy which hold everything together in a space. It'll be shaken. Powers, that speaks of gravity. Magnetic force will be shaken. The powers that will be shaken. Shaken by whom? Who's doing the shaking here? No doubt it's Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Right? It's Jesus' power is what causes the moon to orbit the earth and the earth to orbit around the sun. It is Jesus' power that will be shaken by him. And it will lead the stars to fall. So in those dark days, God will be so indignant, so provoked against those who rebel against him. And as, as the smell of their sin reaches his nostrils, he will withdraw his upholding power from the universe. The powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And so the globe will feel like a strong man has gripped a fig tree and started shaking it violently. And as this tree wobbles and is rattled in all different directions and as the figs begin to fall to the ground, so will it be in those days. When our Almighty God will lift His hands, and thus the power 
that is upholding the universe will begin to diminish. And the sky will begin to rain rocks upon the earth, asteroids, meteoroids, comets. It'll be destruction everywhere. I mean, can we, can we imagine the impact of this that it will have in our weather, in our atmosphere? I mean, can you imagine what would happen to the polarity of the earth or the, the waves in the oceans? I mean, the collateral damage is just inconceivable, to say the least. Who, who could imagine the, the result of this devastation? Let me go through some of the impact that we see in Revelation. You'll find it all in Revelation. And I'm just going to go through a few. Revelation 6.14. I'll give it to you one after the other. Verse 14. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. So as, as you're rolling up the blanket, the sky will split apart. And what is the result? Look what's going to happen at the end times. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. All the islands and all the mountains that you know and you don't know will move. The whole globe, the whole map will, will revamp. God will change to all, all the graphic, all the geographics of all the locations of mountains and islands. Revelation 8 verse 7, hail and fire. Mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And what is the result of this? A third of the earth was burnt. A third of the trees were burnt up. All the green grass was burnt up. And then it says, immediately after that, something like a great mountain, not a great mountain, but something like a great mountain burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And what is the result? A third of the sea became blood. third of the fish died. And third of the ships were destroyed. And you know what? It would only get worse from that point onwards. You can read it for yourself in all the trumpets and the bowls and the, in the last days just to get the, pers your, the perspective on the magnitude of the destruction in those days. Can we imagine the, the terror painted on the faces of the unbelievers on those days? Those who will be there standing all alone without Christ while facing their doom? The time. That was point one. And we were talking about the last pages of the last chapters just before. Jesus returned. Second, the tearing down. There will be cosmic, cataclysmic chaos in the universe. Now we come to the third point, the terror. It all boils down to this. That's the whole purpose of the whole thing as we read earlier in Isaiah. The terror. God is intending to terrify wicked men who rebel against him and reject his calling to come to him. The terror 
the impact that this will have in the heart of unbelievers. How would we describe those who are without Christ would feel in those days? We don't have to speculate. You know why? In Luke 21, Luke already tells us what they're going to feel. In that gospel account of Luke, that is parallel passage to Mark 13, Luke 21, verses 25 and 26, he tells us how men at that time will feel. Let's read it. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth. And look what Jesus in places here, what Jesus adds to it. In the earth, dismay, number one, among nations. Number two, perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Number three, men painting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Dismay, perplexity, painting from fear. Let's take him one at a time. Dismay. Dismay. This speaks of severe emotional stress, overwhelming, overpowering sense of relentless torment and, and anguish. Perplexity. That means feeling perplexed, shocked, anxious. It means you're feeling lost and confused as, as everything that you're held dear to will evaporate before your eyes. And number three, painting from fear. It'll feel like every breath that they will take as though they are breathing the last breath. It's like feeling nausea, so terrified that, that they're about to stop breathing. Painting from fear, meaning dying from fear, expiring. Unbelievers will be scared to death. People will go into absolute terror. Unbearable pain will lead millions to have cardiac arrest and they will have heart attack and literally die. Friend, if you want to live without Christ, then I plead with you, listen to what the scripture clearly says about God's attitude towards unbelievers in those days. If you are today without Christ, I want you to pay careful attention to what I'm about to read to you as how you will feel if you were de there in that last day. Isaiah 13 verse 6 gives us a, even a deeper insight. It says this, Wail for the day of Yahweh is near. Wail. It means scream in terror. Cry loudly and weep. And he continues and he says, It will come as destruction. From Almighty. Therefore, 
all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. It will be a, a paralyzing fear. It will feel like someone sucked your life out of you. And continue on in Isaiah and he says in verse 8, they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe, meaning tremble, like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Man will watch their precious things burn before their eyes. Cars will be crushed. Furniture will be burnt. Houses will be turned into rubble. Businesses will collapse. Children will die before their helpless parents. Hopes and dreams will be destroyed. And you will hear cries, wailing, weeping from all different directions, but you won't know who or what is going on. And it will throw people into confusion. And then confusion will give way to severe torment whole universe will begin to break down. Unbelievers will agonize because it's pitch black. You will feel alone. All alone. And because you'll be hearing cries and distress from all around you, it will only increase your agony all the more. And this will be just a preview of what is to come as God will cast those unbelievers into eternal hell. And they will know that they are powerless, hopeless, helpless, sinful creatures in the hands of a holy God whose righteous anger is kindled against them because of their sin. Friends, if you have not come to Christ, I want to tell you the truth from the scripture. The heavenly cops are already after you. I beg you on behalf of Christ. Make peace with this mighty God whom you greatly offended because of your sin. I know many unbelievers, they want to live in denial. And you want to dig a hole and bury your head in the sand or probably they want to hang out together and try to encourage one another not to think of eternal fire, not to think of the wrath to come. Pretend that everything will be okay. But let me tell you, your dreams will turn into a nightmare when you face God. Friend. You may want to drive your index finger into your ears of your heart so you don't hear this warning. But you know very well that when your time is up, you won't be able to wiggle your way out of God's mighty hands. Friend, I plead with you, be reasonable. Be reasonable. You cannot defend yourself against the strength of this God if he comes against you in the fury of his wrath. You see what he will do. You see what he is capable of. 
Yet God is so merciful. He is so kind that he today sends you terms of peace. This sinner, I beg you, accept God's terms of peace. What is God's terms of peace? It is not an it. It is a he. Who is God's terms of peace? Jesus Christ, this God-man, is our peace. He offered himself on the cross as the perfect sacrifice. His death satisfied God's wrath on behalf of every sinner that comes to him. Do you feel condemned because of your sin? Let me tell you, Jesus' death silenced the condemnation of God's law. It is not by you doing good works that God would remove his wrath from you. All your good deeds wouldn't help you in a day of calamity. Nothing, nothing that you would do that would ever protect you before this holy God who demands nothing less than perfection of you. Throw away your reliance of this half-baked, worthless goodness of yours. They mean absolutely nothing in that day. Rather, accept Jesus' perfect righteousness, which he promises to give to anyone that would stretch an empty hand to him. It is only when you believe in Jesus that God will grant you this perfect righteousness of Christ into your account. Once you believe in Christ, the scripture says you will be saved. And now God commands me to offer free salvation, which is purchased by Jesus' blood to anyone that will come to him, even you in this room. Believe in Jesus. Come to Jesus Christ, no matter how old you are, no matter how young or old, no matter how long you rebelled against this holy God. Come to Jesus and you will find refuge in him from the wrath to come. Dear sinner, I plead with you, let Christ be your shelter. My master bids me to compel you to come to Christ and to come to him at once. He gladly accepts sinful people, prideful people. Jesus loves to accept wicked people, those that are full of lust. Arrogant and filthy people are the kind of people that Jesus loves to save. The more wicked you are, the more stubborn you are, the more he loves to save you. I want to tell you that there is no heart that is too hard for Jesus to soften. No neck so stiff that Jesus cannot lose. No sin that is too vile that Jesus cannot forgive. Come as you are. Come and hide in him. And once you come, he promises that he will never cast you out. He will protect you. He will change you. And he will sustain you. Why? Would he do that? 
because he's such a loving saviour. He is such a compassionate saviour. His grace is amazing. He loves to save even the worst kind of sinners. He does love to save those worst sinners, the murderers, the adulterers, the blasphemers. And if he loves to save the adulterers and the blasphemers and the murderers, why would you think that he would not want to save you? No matter how much of a great sinner you are, Jesus is of a greater Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we've seen a time, we've seen, Lord God, what you will do in those times. We've seen a tearing down. And we went all the way to the future. And we felt the terror that will grip the souls of many people in those days. Lord, and this would be just a preview of what is to come. The time will be eternal. The tearing down will be catastrophic. And the terror will reach its maximum. Lord, we pray. We know that you love sinners that come to Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring to Christ today those whom you have chosen before the foundation of the world. Those are within this room that you had your heart set upon. We cry out to you, Lord, that their hearts would be pricked like at the time of the Pentecost, that they will be cut to the heart. We beg you, Lord, we plead with you, Lord, as we have just pleaded with them that you would come with a saving coming, that you touch the souls, that you will bring him into your sheepfold, Lord. And we plead with you, God, add to the church all those whom you have chosen, Lord. And we pray for our family members and our friends, our dear friends that are here this morning, that you would not let any one of them leave this room without being challenged and without the gospel being so clearly portrayed to them and even staying deep into their hearts, that you demand them to come to Christ and to come to your son at once. Oh, we plead with you, Lord, to waken them up to their senses. Let the light of the gospel of Christ shine in their hearts, Lord. And save them, save their poor, blind, and wicked souls, Lord God. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.